Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. If you're new with us, let me just uh, let you know what we're doing. Uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we find ourselves at the beginning of Matthew 7, which really is getting into the final section of a three-chapter section from chapters 5 through 7 that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we're just going to read verse 1 because we're going to use to lay the groundwork, kind of an introductory message on this section. So let's just read verse 1 of Matthew 7 where Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Very simple, (laughs) and yet very misunderstood. Uh, That particular statement by the Lord has been greatly misunderstood, misapplied by many inside and outside the church. You know, Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, interpreted this to mean, and I'm quoting him, that Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court, and that he could mean nothing else by these words, end quote. Well, he was an anarchist, okay? So he was down on government, courts, police, army, all that stuff. But let me just say this. Jesus is not addressing society in general. He is addressing individuals in particular. So civil courts are not even in view here, all right? Others have interpreted this to mean that we should never pass judgment on anyone for anything. We should never judge lest we be judged. Now, this concept fits nicely into our age because we are living at a time when everyone is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. We have cut ourselves off pretty much as a society from God's moral absolutes, which are found in his word. And as such, we now find ourselves adrift in a sea of moral relativism. And because of it, our society is now being carried away by the current of popular opinion and the prevailing philosophical wind of, if it feels good, do it. And since everyone wants to do whatever seems right in their own eyes without anyone opposing them, Well, they naturally don't want to be in opposition to anyone else. Therefore, you accept me and I'll accept you seems to be the general attitude of our age. And so today, because of all this, we hear a lot in our society about tolerance, acceptance, inclusiveness, love, which the world defines pretty much as just accepting what anybody wants to do any way they want to live because... To speak out against sin and immorality in any way, shape, or form means that you're judging and therefore you're bigoted, self-righteous, and narrow-minded. Now, folks, we can accept that attitude from the world, right? I mean, it doesn't surprise us when unbelievers, and believe me when I tell you, if there's any verse in the Bible that unbelievers know, it's this one. And it shouldn't surprise us that they would use this against us to avert any kind of correction or instruction in righteousness upon their lives. But it's really sad to see how many Christians are taking the same attitude and misusing the statement by Jesus to also escape any godly instruction or correction when they are involved in worldly or even sinful behavior. I mean, so often today we hear as we try to confront maybe a Christian who is teaching false doctrine or someone involved in immoral living. What do they immediately say to you? You're judging me, you know. Who are you to judge me? Judge not lest you be judged, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden they turn the whole thing around, shifting the blame on you, and now you become, you know, the guilty party, and they are the mistreated victim. 
They call you things like legalistic, divisive, unloving, judgmental. Even though we're only trying to do what Scripture commands us to do, which is holding each other accountable to live our lives in obedience to what God has commanded. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or, of course, woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Look, the idea of reproving, correcting, and even instructing implies making judgments based on the way people in need of these things are living their lives. Look, if somebody needs to be corrected, instructed, or even uh, reproved, you're making a judgment based on how they're living, right? Which is causing you to say, look, I need to go to them because, you know, they need to be corrected in this area or or instructed in this area or even reproved. We're making a judgment about the way they're living. And yet so often today, when you try to reprove, and I'm talking about Christians now, when you try to reprove, correct, and instruct somebody from God's Word who's living a life that's not really in accordance with what God has said, they'll accuse you immediately of judging them and violating the very thing Jesus prohibited here in Matthew 7, verse 1, that we are never to judge. But look, did Jesus really mean when he said this, that we were never to judge anyone at any time for anything. Now, those who want to live contrary to God's word will tell you yes. There's a way to avoid any correction upon their life. And even others who are not living in sin, but who refuse to correct others in the body who are living in sin, they'll say things like, well, look, who am I to judge them? All right? I guess that means that some people feel that you have to be perfect before you can try to correct a brother or sister. Now, if that was the case, none of us would be correcting anybody. And the kind of correction I'm talking about is it's just a loving correction. But again, is that what Jesus really had in mind when he said this? I mean, that all judgment was wrong and therefore should be avoided. Now, if you say yes, then what about what Jesus went on to say just a few verses later in verses 15 and 16? Where he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, we are to judge those who claim to speak for God. We are to hold up their teaching next to God's word. Remember what it says of the Bereans in Acts um, 17.11, I think it was, uh, that the um, Bereans, after Paul preached in Thessalonica and then came down to Berea, and preach the word of God there. It says the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received what Paul had to say with an open heart, but then went home and made sure it compared with what was in the word of God. Look, they were commended for doing that. We need to test all things. We need to, to judge what somebody claims to speak on behalf of God if they're really teaching correctly from what God has said in his word. Also, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives the guidelines for dealing with a Christian who is involved in sin. I'll just give them to you quickly. He said, first of all, you confront them privately. Secondly, if he refuses to repent, take one or two other believers and go to him and try to reason with him or her. Thirdly, if that doesn't work, take it to the leaders that they might confront this person. And finally, if none of that brings them to repentance, then we are to disfellowship them from the church until they do repent. All of this is based upon judging the actions of those living contrary 
to what God has said in his word. Also, and this is important, guys, as a kind of a foundational message for this section, because I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, Jesus told us never to judge. Well, he didn't tell us never to judge. He told us don't judge wrongfully, and we'll see that in a moment. But let's just see how the Word of God deals with the subject of making judgments, as opposed to never making any judgments. Let me just read you the first two, and I'll have you turn to the next two. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 21 and 22, listen to what Paul said. We just made reference to it. Paul said, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So right here, we are commanded to judge between right and wrong, good and evil. And whatever we determine is good, because God says it's good, we are to embrace it. We are to cling to it. Whatever is not good, whatever is evil, because God says it's evil, we are to, you know, condemn that behavior. But we're making a judgment, aren't we? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is dictating a letter to the church of Ephesus. And he says to them, I know your works. And they had a lot of good things going on in their church. He said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be liars. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. He is actually commending a church for being intolerant of evil. Today, good heavens, if we don't put our arms around everything, we're intolerant. Well, we sh- and that is, is designed to beat us into submission, right? To intimidate us. To never speak out against evil. But here the Lord Jesus Christ says, look, a discerning church discriminates between what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, truth and error. And Jesus commended this church, although they had some problems in other areas, which he goes on to address. He commended them that they didn't just accept guys coming into the fellowship claiming to be apostles, speaking on behalf of God, but they tested what they had to say against what God had said and found some of them to be liars and threw them out in their ear. And Jesus, I applaud you for that. Today, oh, what an intolerant church. Look, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to what Paul said here. He said, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, guy living with his own stepmother. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. One of the things about the church in Corinth was they prided themselves on being very open-minded and tolerant. And what that always does is it always opens the door for sinful living. If you're not going to speak out against sin, as God has commanded us to in a church, you open the door for people to live any way they want. And Paul is saying, you know what, that tolerance is your downfall. You're tolerating sin. you got a guy living with his own stepmother, and you're not mourning? You haven't dealt with this? Well, who are we to judge? I'm sure was the mantra, you know, in Corinth. And Paul says, look, I'm not even with you guys. And I, this is a no-brainer. Uh, even though I'm not there personally, this is a slam-dunk issue. He said, look, indeed, as, as being absent from you in body, I'm present in spirit. I've already judged this matter, all right? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, next Sunday, when you get together, you guys got to deal with this. 
He said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't have time to get into, folks, what that means, but it doesn't sound good, does it? That's all you need to know. It's a bad thing, okay? The bottom line that Paul is saying, look, it is not right to tolerate sin in your midst. you got a guy living with his own stepmother out of wedlock, and the Greek implies this was common knowledge of the whole town. What kind of a witness is this to unbelievers, Paul is saying? How can God bless your church? He goes on to say, don't you know a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? A little sin allowed in the body will spread until the whole body is corrupted? Turn to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Paul is saying to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Timothy, preach the word. In season, out of season. In other words, whether you feel like it, whether you don't, whether people are accepting of it or you're facing a hostile audience, you preach the word. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when people, and he's talking about churchgoers now, the time will come when they, churchgoers, will not endure sound doctrine. Folks, the time is here. It's already come. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In other words, there is coming a time, and I believe we are in that time, when a lot of people in the church really don't want to hear sound doctrine. The word sound doctrine in Greek means healthy teaching. They want junk food. I was talking to somebody between services, okay? Uh, There is junk food for the body and there's junk food for the mind. And the idea is that, look, when a person turns away from good, healthy teaching from God's word and begins to feed on junk food, all kinds of other theologies and doctrines like, you know, God wants everyone healthy and wealthy and blah, 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 That kind of stuff. People run to hear that kind of stuff. God wants me prosperous. God wants to bless my business. We're being fed that constantly. It's not about holiness. It's not about taking up your cross and dying to self. It's all about what God's going to do for me. And when you feed on a diet of junk food, you're going to be a sick Christian, spiritually speaking. And Paul says in the last days this will characterize the church. Not every church, but for the most part. There's always going to be a teacher out there somewhere, and they're getting more and more easy to find, who will tell you what you want to hear as long as you come to their church and make sure you give a lot of money. But that's not why we come to church, to be placated. We come to be exhorted, we come to be taught, instructed, corrected, because the goal is that we walk closer with the Lord. And those churches that will not do that, Paul says they are wrong, not the ones that... Hold people accountable to living with according to what God has said. You know, if the Word of God is being taught week after week, you know, we don't really need to say too much else, right? If you come to a church and they're teaching the Word of God verse by verse, you're getting the whole counsel of God, aren't you? And as you are feeding on the Word of God, it's going to step on your toes, and it should, in areas that you may not want your toes stepped on. But if you're open to wanting to really be what God wants you to be, you'll receive it. And begin to pray that God gives you the grace to make the changes. If you're not open to being what God wants you to be, you're going to find the church is going to tell you what you want to hear. Now I'll give you two more. But again, this implies judgment, right? Correction. I'll give you two more. You don't have to turn there. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what Paul said. 
He said, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul said, if you've got, div- you got a person who's a troublemaker, who's one who was given over to causing division, and what did God say in Proverbs, one of the six things, or the seven things he hates the most, one who sows discord among brethren, the devil comes to divide and conquer. And when a person comes into the fellowship and all they want to do is divide, get people against each other, you warn them a couple of times, throw them out in his rear end. Oh, but how intolerant and unloving is that? Look, I want to see people right with God. I want to see that guy, whoever he is, I want to see his life right with God so God can bless him. But you know what? I'm not going to have him infect all the other healthy sheep that I love too if he's not willing to be corrected and repent. So he needs to go. It's not unloving to throw somebody out who wants to destroy the unity and the harmony and the health of the body of Christ here in this local church. Romans 16, verse 17, Paul said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. You have to make a judgment with regard to right and wrong and so on. Look, it's obvious from these and many other scriptures in the New Testament and so on that God clearly does not forbid all judgment. In fact, listen, he charges his people with the responsibility to judge false teaching and immoral living. So again, what did Jesus then mean when he said, judge not lest you be judged? Well, listen, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to look at the context. Context, guys, is everything when it comes to understanding what a particular verse or statement means. We need to look at the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount to get this an understanding of what Jesus is saying here. Look, as we've been studying this sermon, we have recognized and seen that all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been warning us against hypocritical, superficial religion that only deals with the outward actions but leaves the heart undealt with. And as we have gone through the sermon, what group has he constantly held up? What group of men has he constantly held up as an example of how not to be and what not to do? The scribes and Pharisees, right? The scribes and Pharisees who had based their righteousness upon their work, something that Jesus dealt with earlier in chapter 6, because they prayed a lot, fasted often, and gave a lot of money to help poor people. They thought they were better than everybody else. And they were going to heaven because of what they did. And anybody who didn't measure up to their standard of righteousness, they looked down on and condemned. See, it was the critical, judgmental, self-righteous egotism of the scribes and Pharisees that the Lord was talking about here. And listen, very important point. The scribes and Pharisees weren't going around condemning sin as much as they were going around condemning people. They condemned them for the way they looked, the way they dressed. They condemned their character flaws, their weaknesses, their bad habits. Basically, they condemned people who weren't Pharisees and didn't live like Pharisees. Anybody outside their group, they condemned and looked down on. Look, Jesus isn't saying... That we should never judge anybody for anything because Jesus knew the law of God. Jesus knew the law of God. And he knew that God said in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 17, listen to what he said. He said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Listen, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. 
and not bear sin because of him. Listen to what God is saying. If somebody is caught up in a sin, a trespass, if you don't confront them, you hate them. Why? Because they're your brother, your sister. Look, love is tough on sin because love wants the best for somebody's life. And sin will cut us off from God's best. But here when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, he was basically talking about the ugly, judgmental, critical spirit of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees and those like them today who go around putting others down who don't live and look like they do. Now, the word judge there is the Greek word krino, and it does have different shades of meaning. I'll give you a few of them that I think could be the very things Jesus was talking about, and I think all three I'm going to give you, I think, uh, he had in mind. But depending on the context, the word krino could have different shades of meaning. I think one of the shades of meaning that is applicable here in Matthew 7, verse 1, is when Jesus says, don't judge, we could translate that, don't criticize. Don't criticize. In other words, Jesus is saying, stop going around criticizing everybody because they don't measure up to your standard of righteousness. We all fall into this, unfortunately. And we all need to hear something like this from time to time because we need to correct ourselves. But look, there may come a day when after a service, as you're going out to the parking lot to get in your car to go home, you may see somebody in the parking lot who was just in this service lighting up a cigarette. Or maybe you're in a restaurant somewhere and you recognize somebody that has just recently started coming to the church and there they are by the bar having a beer watching the ball game. Now, if that happens, what happens in your heart almost immediately? You want to be critical towards that person, don't you? And you start thinking to yourself, and you may not verbalize it, but you start thinking to yourself, how could a real Christian do that? I would never do that. You know, I don't smoke anymore. I don't drink. How could a real Christian do that? But what you didn't know was that two months ago when the guy got saved, he was smoking dope four or five times a week and shooting up heroin. And in two months' time, the Lord working in his heart and his life has delivered him from those things. And now, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in his life and conforms him more and more each day to the image of Jesus, he's going to take care of the other stuff, isn't he? In other words, he is a work in progress. Didn't Paul say, he, Jesus Christ, who has begun a good work in us, will complete it? You know, it's manifestly wrong for us to take a person at any point in their sanctification process. And that begins at salvation and culminates with our glorification when Jesus returns at the rapture. And we are made like him, perfect, as we see him as he is. It's manifestly wrong to take any one incident or any one period of time in a person's life who is being worked on by the Lord to, to look at one area of their life that's not right yet and use it to condemn them and judge them. You know, I've got people that used to come to this church 25 and 30 years ago that judged me for something I did back then. And believe me, as a young believer, I did a lot of stupid boneheaded things. <laughs> things that I look back on now and go, man, what a bonehead. I would never do that today. And yet, because I've lost touch with them 25 years ago, they still think of me in those terms. So when they think of Pastor Phil Balmar, oh, man, you should see what he did. You know, he's not really a man of God. 
Well, you know what? I like to think I've grown a little bit. We are all a work in progress. That's why it's so important that we don't go around judging each other unrighteously. In fact, turn to Romans 14. And let me, let me just read you what Paul said on this, okay? From verses 4 to 13 of Romans 14, starting in verse 4. Paul said, look, who are you to judge another's servant? And he has in mind the servants of God. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. God, not you, God, all right? One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord does not observe it. Don't judge people because some people single out certain days as more honorable than others. Don't forget, Jewish believers still held the Sabbath in high esteem. So every Saturday, every Sabbath, they would really set that day aside to honor the Lord. Gentile believers who never practiced the Sabbath say, well, that's stupid. I mean, every day is a day that I worship the Lord, right? We're approaching Christmas, right? I mean, there are some Christians who have a real conviction about Christmas, right? Because pagan, you know, I mean, Jesus was not born on December 25th. That was the feast of Saturnalia, you know, and the whole lit trees and Yule logs and all that stuff, man, that's pagan at its roots, you know, and we should not have anything to do with the day. Look, first of all, let me just say this. Yes, Christmas and a lot of its traditions have pagan origins. Do we as Christians put a tree up, put lights on it because we bow down and worship the tree? I do it because I was a kid and it reminds me of my childhood and just the things we did as a family. But the idea that if something started out of the devil that we can't redeem it and use it for God now because that's wrong some way, then you know what, folks? Let's all close the book and go home because we all started out as property of the devil and God redeemed us and is now using us, right? But if you have a conviction that says, I don't want to celebrate Christmas Day, it's pagan in origin. I, I respect that. Every day is a, I celebrate the birth of Christ. That's great. I Wonderful. I understand where you're coming from. But don't lay a trip on the rest of us who want to single out a day because we want to really use it to celebrate God's precious gift to the human race. Stop judging each other, Paul said, with days and diets. And goes on to talk about how some people still believe that it was wrong to eat certain meats like those sacrificed to idols. There are Christians today who think that we should not eat meat at all. That, you know, Christians should eat only vegetables because meat messes us up. It's not good for the body. I don't know. I know I like a steak once in a while. I like a burger once in a while. And if you have a conviction about that and it's, you think it's horrible to eat meat, then don't eat meat. And I respect that. But let's not judge each other. Okay? Don't get into the whole idea. Well, because you celebrate Christmas and you eat steak or you have ribs or whatever, that you, your walk with God isn't right. Oh, man, give me a break. Paul, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, no one, no one dies to himself. If we live, we, are, we live to the Lord. If we die, we, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Each one of us is the Lord's who are Christians, right? And we're not supposed to be pleasing each other necessarily. We're supposed to be pleasing him. He goes on to say, verse 10, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? 
For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Don't trip them up with guilt trips because you have a conviction on something that they don't have a conviction on. Now listen to me. Very important point. Don't miss this. The context here is judging each other with regard to personal, non-essential beliefs. Matters of the conscience, not sin. Paul is not saying if somebody is living with somebody out of wedlock, you are not to judge them because they do it unto the Lord. That's ridiculous. He's talking about non-essentials. He's talking about gray areas. He's talking about things that God has not specifically condemned in his word. Okay? He's not talking about stealing or lying or committing adultery. Those are always wrong. He's not talking about things that God has forbidden. He's talking about gray areas. Things that God hasn't said are, are wrong, but it's a matter of your conscience. If you think it's wrong, don't do it. Look, if another Christian is involved in a sinful situation, It is not only our right, listen, it's our responsibility to judge their actions as wrong and begin to pray for them. And maybe the Spirit of God will even lead us to confront them at one point. Why? To bring them into repentance and restoration with God that he might really begin to bless their lives once again. That's the key. We never correct, instruct, reprove out of vindictiveness or self-righteousness. It should always be done and only be done out of a sincere sense of love to see that person be all that God wants them to be. And if they're living in sin, they can't be all that God wants them to be. But what we must never do, what Jesus forbids us from doing, is, and here's the second shade of the word judge. We are never to judge them. Yes, we're not to go around with a critical attitude, you know. But we are also not to judge the motives of their hearts for the things that they do for God. Paul makes this clear. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light, and listen, will reveal the motives of our hearts. Then God will give each one whatever praise is due. And what the Bible is saying, I think Jesus also had this in mind when he said, Don't judge lest you be judged. He was uh, not only saying, don't go around being critical and down at everybody because they don't look and dress like you and so on. But also, do not judge a person's motives for what they do. Don't say, oh man, you know, I know why they're serving in ministry in this church. Because they want to get in good with the pastor. It's all an attempt to kind of get in good with the pastor. Well, you don't know that. And it's wrong for you to think that because that's judging the motives of their heart. Or, I know why they gave that money to God. Because they wanted to look so spiritual in everybody's eyes. Well, you don't know that. We are not to judge people's motives. The only one that is um, capable of doing that is God who will do it when the Lord Jesus comes back. We stand before him and everything we did will be tested to see what sort it was. And God is going to test the motives of what motivated us to do what we did for him. And motives are very important to God. I don't have the capacity to judge your motives, but God does and he will because they are very important. If I do anything out of selfish motivation, then God won't reward me. If I do serve to be seen by men and receive recognition and personal glory, I won't be rewarded. But if I do serve because I love the Lord and want to see others saved and so on, 
yes, I will be rewarded. But let me give you the third shade of meaning, and I think Jesus also had this in mind. More importantly, when Jesus said or forbid us from judging uh, others, he was forbidding us from judging people, but not really principles. You say, well, you lost me. What do you mean? Well, when somebody violates a principle in Scripture that God has laid down or a law that God has established, I am allowed by the Lord to judge their actions, but I am not allowed to judge them personally. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, we all fall into this too, right? We are prone to say something like, he's terrible, rather than he has done a terrible thing. Or, he's no good, rather than the thing he has done is not good. The bottom line, and this is, goes for our kids too, when you raise your kids, make sure you single out the action from the person. Don't ever say, you're a bad boy. Say, what you did was not right or was a bad thing. But bottom line, I am allowed to judge the sin, but not the sinner. The word judge in verse 1 is a Greek word that could mean the kind of judgment that condemns a person to hell. So in other words, Jesus is not just forbidding us from having a critical judgmental attitude or from judging people's motives. He's also forbidding us from sitting in the place of God and condemning a person to hell because of how they look or on account of how they act or what they're doing. Look, all ultimate judgment is, is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 5, verses 21 and 2, Jesus said, The Father has committed to the Son all judgment. All judgment. And what he has in view there is all ultimate judgment. Someday, sinners are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, and he will pronounce them guilty, and he will condemn them to hell for eternity. He alone has the right to do that because he alone, along with the Father and Son of Spirit, of course, alone knows the heart and knows everything that they've ever done and said and so on. Only God has the capacity, only God has the right to sit in a place of ultimate judgment. We don't have that right. We cannot say, oh, because that guy had a beer, I saw him in a restaurant having a beer because, you know, he comes to church and his hair's all long and so on. Ah, he's not a Christian. He's going to hell. We are not allowed to pass that kind of judgment. Remember what Jesus said in John seven twenty four. He said, do not judge. And he was talking about the Pharisees and what they did. He said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There is a righteous judgment and an unrighteous judgment. A righteous judgment looks at actions and says, look, those actions violate God's word, therefore they're wrong. Unrighteous judgment looks at the outside and says, look, I don't like, like the way you look. You look like a sinner, okay? I mean, we laugh, but don't people do that? So it's wrong for us to... Look at some, you know, I was telling first service, I know a lot of Christians, Christian guys who are bikers, okay? Now, if you just saw them riding by, you know, you'd see a bunch of gigantic, burly guys with leather jackets coming towards you on the street there. And, you know, as a Christian, you might be prone to go, wow, what a hardcore looking group of sinners that is. <laughs> Until they ride by and you look in the back of their jacket, leather jackets and says, Bikers for Christ or something like that, right? You know what? We need to be careful that we don't judge by outward appearance, but that we do judge righteously. 
In other words, we judge what God has commanded us to judge. We can condemn and judge uh, sinful behavior. We can condemn um, false teaching. There's a lot of things God tells us we, we are to judge and condemn. But then a lot of things that he has said we are not to do. And here's the problem when we do those things. Whenever we start to um, hold ourselves up as the standard of righteousness that everybody else needs to attain to, so I never do that, we all do it. We all do it. You know why? Because our pride is such where we all think we're doing everything right. I mean, there are times when, okay, the Holy Spirit's convicting us, and we go, oh, no, that's not right. But for the most part, we tend to judge everybody by how we live and what we think is good, right? I mean, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you guys really make a big mistake. You judge yourselves next to others to see if you're righteous. We are not to do that, judging ourselves by others. We're not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, is my point. And the idea is that whenever we begin to think that we are the standard, that everybody else has to pattern their Christian life according to how we live and what we think is right and wrong, inevitably what happens is we become self-righteous Pharisees who put others down because of what they don't do that we do do. So what do you, what do you mean? Well, again, turn to Luke 18 quickly. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. It says, Also Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Okay, They had a self-righteousness. That they were so great, and because others didn't really live like they did, they, were, they despised them. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, the Pharisees were considered to be the best guys in society. Tax collectors, the worst. Okay, So Jesus is really... Making a contrast here, okay? The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the problem with self-righteousness is it blinds you to your true self. We're going to see this next week. The whole log and speck in your ideal. Jesus was addressing the issue of pride and self-righteousness. It has a way of blinding us from our true self. And when we begin to look at ourselves as the standard, and because of what I do and how I live, I am right with God, and God loves me more than anybody else, I become a Pharisee. And when I come to God to pray, I'm not really coming with a spirit of brokenness, humility, and confession. I'm coming with a spirit of self-congratulation. He was praying thus with himself. God wasn't listening. Because what he was doing, was he was having a love fest with himself. That we would say he was throwing roses at himself, right? I'm such a great guy. God, aren't you lucky to have me? And the other guy knew he was a sinner. Wouldn't even look to heaven. Was so ashamed of himself. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, that brings up another important consideration, which will end with this. Another important consideration concerning the self-righteous condemnation of the Pharisees toward non-Pharisees. 
the Pharisees put themselves in God's place and sat in judgment on everyone else because, listen, not only did they consider themselves more righteous than everyone else based on how they lived, that was one reason they felt justified in sitting in the place of God. Can you imagine that? God, move over. Let me just sit here for a while on your throne because I'm worthy to judge everybody else. Not only did they feel justified because of the way they lived to judge everybody else, but also they felt justified to sit in judgment of everyone else because, listen, they had superior knowledge of the law of God. Guys, these were the doctors, the scholars. These were the guys who were the lawyers. They knew the law. They studied the law. Jesus said, you search the scriptures every day, yet you're, you don't realize I'm on every page. You refuse to come to me, that I might give you the eternal life you're looking for every day to attain. They thought because they had superior knowledge of the law of God, the word of God, that justified them in sitting in judgment of everybody else. Little did they realize that their knowledge of the law was going to be the very standard by which God was going to use to judge them by. You know, Paul, a rabbi and scholar of Jewish law, made this clear when he said in Romans 2 verse 1, he's talking now about the Jewish elite, probably Pharisees, scribes, all these supposed scholars who knew the law so well. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. That's the problem. These guys knew the law, and so they condemned everybody else who didn't live up, live up to the law. Yet they themselves were some of the worst transgressors of the law. As the old saying goes, when you point a finger to condemn somebody else, guess what? You got three pointing back at you. And that's kind of the idea here. You think the scribes and Pharisees were so righteous by the way they lived? Oh, yeah. They even tithed from their herb gardens. Big deal. As Jesus said, you know, you nitpick a little minutia of the law, but you neglect the weightier issues like mercy and love and forbearance and so on. Again, big log hanging out of their eye. Couldn't see themselves honestly. But nitpick everybody else to death. My pastor has a saying I, used, I, I really love. You know, He said, you know, it's amazing how awful my sins look when you're committing them. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. I can be really hard on you guys when you blow it, but I'm so gentle on myself. We all do that, don't we? And Paul is saying, look, the harder you want to be in others, hey, God will be that hard on you. Jesus put it this way in Luke 12, verses 47 and 8. He said, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know his master's will, yet committed things deserving of stripes, of a beating, of punishment, shall be beaten with few. Bottom line, with knowledge comes responsibility. That's why the Bible says in James chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3 verse 1, Brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. What he is basically saying is this. With knowledge comes responsibility. Make sure, make sure, that as you study God's word, that you are looking at yourself primarily. I mean, Jesus is basically saying to the scribes and Pharisees back then and to others today, look, you think that by knowing God's word so well, it qualifies you to sit in judgment of another person's life? He says what it really does, first and foremost, is it holds you account accountable and responsible to live up to everything you know because 
You know the word of God that well. Therefore, you're required to live according to what God has said more than, than anybody else who doesn't know it the way you do. With knowledge comes responsibility. The judge should be more severely judged when he does wrong because he knows better. He, of all people, can't plead ignorance of the law. And that goes for anyone who uses the word of God to sit in judgment of another instead of using it first, first, to judge themselves as to whether they are living up to all that God has said. Let me just close by saying this. All throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to do something very wise. The Bible in the New Testament says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are really what? In the faith. Examine yourself to make sure you're really a Christian, the idea. Paul said, judge yourself and you won't have to be judged by God someday. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to get into that at the end of this chapter. Chapter 7, verses 21 to 28. He talks about people who come to church, hear the word, but don't really go out and live it indicating that they don't really have saving faith because a person with saving faith hears God's word and goes out and applies it into their daily lives. No, we're not perfect, but there is a desire to do what God has said. See, this is the point, guys. The judgment that Jesus is talking about here in chapter 7, verse 1, could be as simple as not going around being critical, hearted against everybody who doesn't look like you and talk like you and, and dress like you and so on. But it gets more severe. There are a lot of Christians, and they've grown up in denominations, we'll say, gone to church all their lives. They're kind of like the self-righteous brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Well, this one kid goes out and sows his wild oats, right? The other brother stays home and works for his father faithfully. When this rebellious kid comes back after having been broken by God and comes back to his father's house and repents, and the father receives him with open arms, the other brother is incensed, isn't he? Because people who live self-righteous lives of legalism cannot understand God's grace. When God opens his arms to wayward sinners, I mean people that have lived really bad lives especially, the churchgoers have the hardest time dealing with that. Again, when the hippies started getting saved back in the 60s, it was the church that had the hardest time accepting these kids. Why? Because I've been in church all my life. Who are these Johnny-come-latelys, you know? Why should they be in ministry? I'm more righteous than they are. I'm more holy. And look at the way they dress. Look at the music they listen to. All about externals. And Jesus is saying, look, it is not your place to judge somebody based on appearance or based on the fact that they don't measure up to your standard of righteousness. They are God's servants. He will make them stand. He will make them what he wants them to be. What are we to do? Galatians 6 if they stumble, you who are spiritual do what? Stand over them, point a condemning finger at them, stoop down, help them up. That's maturity. Bearing each other's burdens. Loving each other. So next time we'll finish this section. And uh, there's a lot, a lot more here. But I wanted to just kind of lay a foundation because this is such an abused topic. And really, it's been used by the devil to circumvent godly correction in love, which has fostered an attitude of, you accept me, I'll accept you. And we see it in the church today. And that's something that will never allow us to grow into all that God wants us to be. We'll never allow God to bless us the way he wants to bless us if we're not really growing in holiness and so on. So we'll see that 
next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We realize, Lord, that we are all guilty of violating this command. We are all guilty, Lord, of falling to self-righteousness, Phariseeism, critical heartedness. Lord, forgive us and keep us from these things. And yet, Lord, help us to balance it by wanting to see our brothers and sisters be all they can be for you, which means what sometimes we lovingly and humbly try to correct or instruct them. Give us the grace to walk the balance, Lord, between critical heartedness and spirit-led correction, that we can all be what you want us to be, and we can be family, looking out for each other, and so on. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.